0: Okie dokie. Where did I? There we go. Alright, so, we're going through church history. And, uh, as we do so, we are in the the Enlightenment, also, uh, come on, also sometimes called the Age of Reason. Though some people will make the Age of Reason like in the 1700s. But, we've got two more Sunday schools before we have to take a break. And I see it there because I love Sunday school, so to me it's a have to take a break during the summer. But we have to talk about Pilgrim's Progress. We almost got there last week. We're going to talk about Pilgrim's Progress. Have anybody ever read Pilgrim's Progress? Okay. Okay, so a couple. I read the Reader's Digest. (laughs) Yeah. I read the part in high school that made me read. Okay, well this is the Cliff Notes version of the Reader's Digest version of Pilgrim's Progress. Alright. John Bunyan. Like so many other people, including Edmonton that we talked William Edmonton that we talked about last week, the Quaker. Like so many other people, he had been part of Cromwell's new model army. There's a lot of these guys, and then after Cromwell's army breaks up, what do they do? Several of them ended up becoming preachers, missionaries, and things, because Cromwell had really impressed upon his army we're doing this for holy reasons. They were, in general, a, a pretty religious group. Not to say that all of them were, but in general. Anyway, one Sunday, though, he heard a sermon about the the dangers of Sabbath breaking and then went and played a game of tip-cap, which is where you flip a stick in the air and then smack it with another stick. Pretend it's fun. Anyway, point is, is he heard that God hates Sabbath breaking and then went and played a game on, sa- on, on the Sabbath. It's just a bad, bad man. <laughs> Evil. <laughs> He heard, kind of, he heard God's voice from heaven telling him to abandon his sins and save himself from the fires of hell because he was playing tip cat. Now, he did write in his autobiography, which is called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. He's like, I engaged in all manner of vice and ungodliness when he'd been a soldier. Not exactly sure what that entails because I haven't haven't actually read that. Um, But the thing that that put him over the edge was playing tip cat. So I have no idea. His all manners of worldly vice and, and ungodliness may not have been St. Augustine level. We just, I don't, I don't really know. Interestingly, one of the first books that he wrote was against the Quakers, called Some Gospel Truths Open, and about why the Quakers were all horribly, horribly wrong. Because nobody liked the Quakers, right? Everybody hated the Quakers back then, including John Bunyan. Thankfully, yeah. I mean, I'm not a huge Quaker fan, but, you know, yeah. Now, when Charles II came back into power, the, the, they refer to this as the Restoration, big old capital R. When Charles II came back to power, that means that so did high church liturgy. So did uh, anti-Puritanism. So all the stuff that Bunyan had been living out in the new model army, all the stuff that he he's like, I've just been converted to be a strong... Bible-believing, you need to own this for your own personal salvation, the kind of Christian, goes out the window. It's now back to you need to jump through liturgical hoops, all that kind of stuff. So he found himself getting repeatedly imprisoned for being a Puritan. Because you remember when we talked about the Claritin Code, that several laws, amongst which was also, you can't have more than five people congregating outside of the Church of England. If you do, you go to prison. So he kept going to prison. Um, and uh, so he, he was actually in prison at one point for, for 12 years, and his family became absolutely destitute. They had no money, they had no prospects or anything. They begged him to, to reconsider, but he wrote, he's like, I, I, I cannot go against my conscience. God has called me to be a preacher, he's called me to preach against the Church of England, there's nothing I can do about this. right?" I actually have respect for John Bunyan in this, is that he's willing to drag his family through broken glass to follow God, not just himself. But that's got to be hard. Anyway, in prison he wrote Grace Abounding, you know, this, this, uh, this autobiography. And it's also where he began work on Pilgrim's Progress. What, for those of you that have read Pilgrim's Progress, what, what is it? It's an allegory. It's an allegory. <laughs> allegory is like one word, allegory. It's like, yep. It is like the quintessential allegory. If you ever think of allegories, this is the allegory poster child of allegories. It's an allegory to what it means to be a Christian, how to live out a Christian life. Um, as I said here, by today's standards, it's kind of ham-fisted. It's kind of in-your-face allegory. It's, there's, there's nothing subtle. About Puritans, uh, 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 Puritan, uh, Pilgrim at all. Yeah, even all the names. Oh, yeah, I'm gonna talk about that in a second. Even the names are just like, yeah, could you be? What's who's the guy? Does anybody remember who's the guy that tells him the basic gospel message? The guys, name. Yeah, and the guy that tells him the good the good news is Mr. Evangelist. Yeah, so it's like not subtle, but. It did do a great job of explaining the gospel. In fact, even today, even, like I said, even though it's a little ham you look at it and you go, no, that's about right. That's, that's really solid. A guy named Christian has this big burden that he's carrying on his back, his burden of sin, and he, and he, and he doesn't know what to do with it. He's got he's to work with it. But thanks to a guy named Mr. Evangelist, Christian is pointed in the right direction, away from the city of destruction and toward the celestial city of God. He's just got to get there. And, and Evangelist is like, do you, do you see it? And he's like, oh, no, I don't see it. And he's like, okay, do you at least see the light in the distance? Yeah. Okay, go toward the light. Just go, just go in the right direction, and you'll eventually get there. Pardon
1: me?
0: <laughs> don't, that's because the people, people do that when they're just afraid of death. They shouldn't do that. Anyway, so Mr. Obstinate tries to drag him back home. Again, kind of ham-fisted. But it's like... No, 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 no. You're doing this wrong. No, just don't, don't change. Don't worry. And he's pulled out of the sloth of despond by Mr. Help. Again, yeah, Mr. Worldly Wise Man and Mr. Legality, try to convince him to follow the law to get there. Okay. Again, kind of cheesy. But think about it. What he's saying is worldly wisdom is going to say, well, that's not the way to do this. Legalism is going to say, that's not the way to do this. You can't just trust that God is going to get you there if you're pointing in the right direction. Surely you've got to earn it. Surely you've got to be clever. I grant you the names are clever, but you go, actually, these are the things that would have been tripping people up back then. So I respect this.
1: makes sense what that person is trying to do. You know, I mean, right. there's
0: something to be said for just naming the person what he is. Yep. I mean, nowadays we might name Jesus Aslan, or might yeah. point to sin as being like a ring that you put on your finger that looks pretty, but it, is, it has more heft than you realize, whatever. He's like, no, 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 no it's too subtle. Just, right. Let's just do this. It runs into false Christians named formality and hypocrisy. Uh, formality that says, just like with the Church of England, It's all the stuff that you do. You you have to dress up on a Sunday morning. You've got to make sure that you uh, do the Mass right. You've got to make sure that you. it's important that you do the right stuff. Now, actually there were some Puritans that said you shouldn't dress up on a Sunday morning. But that's not even necessarily where I'm going with that. rather going, that's not what makes a good worship. If you dress up on a Sunday morning because you want to show yourself, you want to show the Lord that this is important to you, that you're treating this as something special... And I'm like, great, that's, that's, that's exactly what I, t- I try to dress so that I'm a professional. If you're trying to dress up because you go, because it's not worship service if you're not dressed up, that's formalism, right? Not just because you dressed formally, because it's all about the form, instead of about the purpose of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, and that's what he's trying to say. Yep, Church of England has this wrong, not because it's inherently wrong for... a a pastor to wear a cassock, or it's inherently wrong to have a big stone table instead of a small wooden one in the front, but because so many people are saying it's the form that makes all the difference. Okay. But he trusts in his book, you know, the Bible, and in the key that he's been given called the promise. He just holds on to this book and trusts the key to open all the doors. Then he finally gets over all of his fears. He crosses over the river of death, which is the last little bit, and he finally enters the glorious celestial city. Bang, 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 hand fist, hand fist. But you know that's actually right. You know, and and, and for people that, at various points, have been told they shouldn't be reading their own Bibles and things, and not for a little while, because the Puritans actually encouraged people to be reading their Bibles. But for for people that may not be the most theologically minded, for him to walk through all this is actually extremely helpful. I think it's really kind of a good book, if you, if you, you have, you just have to wrap your head around a slightly different mentality to be able to get through it. And he wrote a kind of, sort of, sequel about uh, Christian's wife, Christiana, who has a similar kind of journey. It's got a different vibe to it, but anyway, Pilgrim's Progress, kind of an important book. It was huge. In fact, they said, if at the end of the 17th century, a family had any book in their house, it would be Pilgrim's Progress. Most people didn't necessarily have things expensive like books, but this was printed relatively inexpensively. It's like if you've got any novel of, or any book of any kind, it would have been this. So At various points in history, more than a Bible, but yeah, but but depending on which which families you're talking about, yeah. But uh, but this everybody was reading. it. Was just, it was the. Uh, terrifyingly. I was going to use a different example, but maybe a better example. It was the Fifty Shades of Grey for its day. Which says something about how culture has changed. You know? You know, the reason I say it that way, I was going to, like I said, I was going to use a different example, but the reason I say it that way is, this was the water cooler book that everybody had, everybody was reading. If they had made a movie out of a book that year, it would have been this book. This was the book that everybody was going, that rocked. Today, we, we tend to be drawn to that. Yeah. Although Fifty Shades has a lot of controversy, did this one have controversy with the Church of? Oh yeah. Oh, okay. So it it it, it was actually uh, terrifyingly that may even be a better example than I had originally thought because it, for some of the Church of England people who would have read it and sat there and said formalism hypocrisy is that pointed toward us? Yeah. Yes. It's like it would have been controversial for you to have been you've been a, you're kind of a naughty person for reading this this very biblical book. Um, yeah, cultural shifts. Which is not to say that they were nicer people back then. They had their own. How do you know to do both both books have characters in Christians. <laughs> right. This was a really All right, good let's character. move on. Point is that it presented the gospel message to thousands who would never heard it clearly. Um, we 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 talk a lot about how do you clearly present the good news. He did a great job. We had a whole Sunday school class on trying to present the good news in in, in a clear way. He did a good job. It also spawned a lot of allegories. People started churning these things out badly. As as is often the case, when something's popular, people go, Oh, for $45, I can make that same movie. He No, you really can't. You know, it's like, this is a good movie. This is a bad. 900 movies like it. This is a good book. This is a bad. 900 books like it. Nine hundred books like it started popping out all over the place. Hand fisted, inferior allegories. But you could also argue that this is kind of where things like Chronicles of Narnia came. This is C. S. Lewis reading this, going, Yeah, I could do that. I could do it (laughs) more subtly. That's that's one cover of of a a compilation of the Chronicles of Narnia. Who is that? That is the lion. That's right. That's Aslan, the lion. Who's an allegory to Christ. There you go. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read any of the books by George MacDonald, at the Princess and the Goblin and stuff like that. George MacDonald writes allegory in, so that people understand. Arguably even Tolkien. Though so Tolkien said, I don't write allegory. And technically he's right. Because allegory is kind of a one-to-one correlation. This stands in for this. This stands in for this. This stands in for that. And Tolkien's like, no, I don't do that. Right, there is no, this is Jesus, this is God, this is this. Having said that, everything he wrote was trying to infuse things with Christian imagery and Christian theology in the background of it. So you go, yeah, the ring is kind of like sin, and uh, Saruman is kind of like Satan, and Gandalf is kind of like an angel, and there's a lot of people who are kind of stand-ins to the... Yes, but they're not direct stand-ins, so it's not an allegory. You're right. It's a metaphor. Oh, absolutely. Because, remember, he's like a lit prop, so it's very clear. This is not an allegory. It's it's, it's a metaphor. metaphors. Pardon me? We are metaphors. Yeah. Everything can be a metaphor if you push it hard enough. Anyway. But all of this, it's kind of stemming back, not only from this, but kind of stemming back to Pilgrim's progress. It's, It's set the stage for doing this Well, and, and using fiction, quote-unquote fiction, narrative, to explain things that people might not understand theologically, if you try to explain them. Anyway. So it's kind of a big deal. Next year, the Great Plague hit Vienna, which is kind of a big deal. Um, remember last time we talked about the 100,000 people that died in London as part of this last big push of the Great Plague through Europe? carried on through Germany, Bohemia, all over the place, and finally the Austrian city of Vienna. Which is nasty, but it's it's one it's one over the span of like a decade or a decade and a half. There was just a ton of, of cities that went down with the plague. Vienna was a trade city, and it was constantly filled with people from all over the place. It was this hub. It was like Chicago of, 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 of uh, Europe. Everybody went through there. Everybody was going out through there. People and goods from all around the world. The people brought diseases, but even more so, the goods brought diseases with them. They had warehouses that had trade goods that would sit there for months. You'd have grain that would be sitting there for months. You'd have rolled up carpets that would be sitting there for months. Okay, for those of us that have ever worked downstairs in, in the, uh, uh, the Sunday School slash VBS closet, the fact that we had things that weren't sealed in... Sealed containers, even though we we don't have a particularly messy, horribly unhygienic kind of basement, what did we get? We got mice, because we had things that were open. We had paper goods that were open. We not even like we had a lot of food sitting there in the VBS closet. Just we just had tons of stuff. Tons of stuff that can be turned into nests or food, and some degree of hiding place slash sanctuary for mice equals mice. You're just going to get it. These guys had tons of stuff. Warehouses filled with stuff that they didn't touch for months. Which meant that they were filled with rats, and the rats were filled with fleas, and the fleas were filled with bubonic plague, right? Not nice. Again, it didn't help that, like we talked about with London, Vienna was another one of these cities that like all Renaissance and, and, and Enlightenment cities, they were filled with piles of garbage and refuse. They just, gar- they just piled sewage up in the streets. They weren't even as good at cleaning it up as London was. London was relatively good. Vienna was nowhere near that good at, at cleaning things up as London was. And so just, there was just raw sewage and garbage everywhere. It's like cities were designed to incubate bubonic plague. And seriously, it, 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 you sit there and you go, all right, let's cram all the houses together, Let's have tons of storage spaces that nobody can even get to. Let's put food in the streets and raw sewage and then let it fester over the summers and things. And there's a reason when you, you watch these old movies and things and people have their hankies out all the time. And you always think, yeah, they're always like that. And, 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 or cravats. And you always think, they're so genteel. They always have to have their little hankies. You know, I want a gas mask. Hanky, nothing. I would not enjoy being in one of these cities. This would be horrific. Which is why, if you were wealthy, you didn't have... You shouldn't have a... uh, Even a penthouse in the city you lived out in the country. Right? Which, there's a whole genre of BBC stuff that you watch on PBS about people that have to leave their country home because they don't have any money anymore, so they have to go work in, gasp, a city. Which... We look at it and go, well, I suppose that would be rough. Yeah. Totally different kind of rough back then. Okay? All right, anyway. So about 15% of the population died within a couple of weeks. It was huge. About 76,000 people died in the, in the, plague, in the span of, well, several months. It was nasty. It was really nasty. And the Viennese were terrified not only that they might all die. I mean, that's bad enough. But the, their whole raison d'être is to be a trade city. Everybody comes through, everybody leaves their stuff, everybody comes to get stuff and, and takes it away. If you become known as a plague city, what happens? Yeah, I mean, this—they remembered when the plague went through a couple hundred years ago, and they burnt whole whole cities, whole villages to try to stop it. You just go, well, you don't go to Vittenfalden. You know, just, just burn the place. That's just a plague city. You put little signs on the streets going, Do not... Do, go into the woods, come around. Here. No, seriously, yeah. seriously, stop here. Yeah, I mean, they put... Uh, uh, yeah, there, again, there's a reason why, between Justinian's Plague and the Great Plague and the, uh, and the, and the Middle Ages, why Europeans in particular learned a fear of abandoned cities. I, I was just looking at something completely different for a completely different reason this week, and I, and I saw pictures of a burned out city. And, 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 and which I I think is fascinating. I was looking at, at at the ecology of it and trying to see different things. But even then, I realized I have this gut emotional reaction to seeing these burned out, hollowed out buildings. It just it's spooky at a at a level that a lot of cultures would not see as spooky. But as Europeans, like we're trained to see this as inherently spooky. It's like
1: a Bowie, not familiar.
0: Yeah, yeah, and so. You have, when you, when you see an old, burned-out ruin of a castle, you see an old, burned-out ruin of a city, you have this immediate gut reaction that I can only imagine would be similar to being an African walking into a, into a village and seeing a bunch of, of dead bodies lying around and going, oh, the Ebola. Even though I, I'm not afraid of bubonic plague, I, I'm, you know, I, I, and I'm not afraid of ghosts or anything, still, I understand why we have whole tale traditions of there are ghosts in the ruins. There are trolls in the ruins. There are things there. You don't go to where those dead things are. It's scary. Now, one of the few things that kept people's spirits up was a, a local bagpiper named Marks Augustine. Who uh, bagpipes are not just Scottish things. A lot of people have bagpipes. They're a beautiful instrument. Shut up. Anyway, he's famous for having these light, frothy little songs. So that while everybody was dying, everybody was terrified. He was going on playing, you know, life isn't horrible. There's there's things to enjoy. Top 40 little ditties. And everybody liked it. Everybody, he refused to get down, he refused to get depressed. He's just like, no, I'm just going to play my bagpipes and and enjoy life. And and actually did raise the spirits of the people of Vienna a great deal. Which is why they refer to him as Dear Augustine. Or in German, Lieber Augustine which is why you see him on the Austrian stamp as Der Liebe Augustin. Same picture. Anyway, to commemorate this guy who really raised people's spirits in a really hard time. He traveled from end to end, and he played uh, music for the townsfolk, and everybody appreciated him, and he, they'd throw some pennies and, or uh, pennies into his, into his hat. And he made a nice little living doing that, which means he also spent a great deal of time going from end to end, drinking. So it was kind of normal for Augustine by the end of the night to get fairly soused. Not uncommon at all. One time he got so totally dead drunk that the nightly patrol who was looking for dead bodies, because that's what they did every night. Every night you'd go around looking for dead bodies in the street so that you could put them in a mass grave so that the next morning people wouldn't get up to dead bodies in the street. They found him, they tried to wake him up, nothing. So they threw him into a mass grave. Uh, one of these big, huge, deep mass graves. They threw his bagpipes in there, too, because they're like, it's bagpipes. It's infested with the same fleas that infested Augustine. So they threw him in the mass grave, and, and I was gonna say here, our modern archaeologists have found several of these in and around Vienna, some of which had thousands of bodies in them. So these big, huge, deep mass graves. So, found himself in a pit. Luckily, they tended to leave these pits open for a couple of days so that they could fill them up with people. You don't just dig a hole, throw the bodies in, and cover the bodies. You dig a hole, you throw a bunch of bodies in over the span of several days, you cremate them all, and then you you put the dirt back over. So, they throw them into a big, empty, not, it wasn't empty, it had bodies in it, but not fully full pit. So, instead of being burned with the rest of the bodies and then covered over, he just sat in a pile of dead bodies and played his bagpipes. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's his thing. He's like, um, hello? Hello? I can't climb out. It's too deep. Um, what do I do? He's a perky guy and he's a singer. So he's like, okay, i just going to play my bagpipes. You know, and he played a happy little ditty on his bagpipes. Which is why they found him the next day. They found him playing his bagpipes on a pile of corpses. And they pulled him out. You want to talk about a symbol of hope. When everybody's like, oh, man, we're all going to die. Like, I'm playing a happy little song sitting on a pile of corpses. And what's interesting is, doctors think it's his drunkenness that probably saved his life. He had so much alcohol in his system, it probably killed the bacteria. Because you don't sit on a pile of, of corpses with bubonic plague and be okay. Yeah. You tend to get bubonic plague for the same reason that they did. But he never did. Probably because he was pickled. Like, literally pickled. <laughs> anyway, horror. Total horror. And the Viennese said, Simple of hope. If Augustine can spend a whole night sitting on a pile of corpses and sing about it, live for years after that, I think we can survive this as a town. In fact, they were so excited, someone even wrote a song about it. you familiar with this song? Okay, I found it. So we usually think of it as a kid's song. Now, this is in German, but I'll also make sure that I I read it in English. Oh, Oh, you dear Augustine, Augustine. Augustine, oh, dear Augustine, all is lost. Money's gone, milk's gone, all is lost, Augustine. Oh, Dear Augustine, everything is lost. That's a good sequence. He's very happy. All you dear Augustine, 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 oh, dear Augustine, all is lost. Home is gone, the is gone. lies in the dirt. No all is lost. This is a children's song, right? Which makes you terrified as to what these things are about, doesn't it? What are the other songs about? Have you heard that song before? I heard the melody. Yeah. Yeah. okay. There's something this, horribly. What? Is this what Pied Piper was written about? Actually, um, I don't think it's written specifically about him because it was, it was earlier, but it might have been about some of the stuff with the, um, the earlier plague. Just remember what the, what the uh, Pipe Piper was supposed to do? Get the rats out of town. town. His whole thing was he was supposed to place so all the rats leave so that the town is saved. It's not just, we don't like the rats, it's bubonic plague, get rid of the rats. And then they didn't pay him, which is why he piped out the children now, too. Um. At this time, did they know it was the fleas on the rats, or you know? You I, know think it it like that, yep. I think and by then they figured it out. kinds of theories. I think by now know. they were figuring it out. Well, they at least knew that it was it was because of the rats. I'm not sure that they knew that it was because of the fleas, but they had, or they were talking about getting rid of the rats and stuff. But. Um,
1: Ring around the rosie about that too. Well, a
0: pocket um, full of posies. That's yeah. about
1: the plague
0: too. Mm-hmm. And London Bridge has fallen down, yeah. fallen down, fallen down, fallen. Remember when we talked about London Bridge burning? And the Duke of York saved the town by, by basically demolition of the of the rest of the part of the bridge. Yeah, a lot of children's songs are about things that are just plain. <laughs> I don't know why it's locked up. <laughs> okay. Uh, I have no idea. I have no idea why it stopped responding, but it locked up as a result. So no, 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 I'll get it going again. But for it's it's the plague! <laughs> it was the plague! Viruses. <laughs> oh, it has a whole new meaning now, doesn't it? But seriously, this is one of these things where a lot of children's stories, a lot of children's, um, a lot of children's songs and things actually have some some very uh, creepy imagery. Uh, um, oh, in the in the original. Um, let's do it this way. In the original, there's something dreadfully, terribly wrong with the Austrian. Um, in the <laughs> like in the original Cinderella, the the sisters chopped off their toes to try to fit into the glass slipper and things like that. So I mean, there's some there's some seriously intense elements to that. Anyway. Yeah, but then we clean them up to tell our kids, and then we clean them up all the more for Disney movies. So we lose all of it. The wolf ate the grandmother. Can't wait. The little mermaid died.
1: That's
0: right. It's no belief. Still. All right. There's even a fountain called Augustine's Fountain uh, in downtown Vienna. So if you ever go there, fountain um, to the bagpiper who laid out a pile of corpses on my wacky fountain. But this is just interesting. Actually, this isn't even the original. They had a they had a completely different sculpture there because I found a picture of it from like nineteen oh four, but had, it was a much cooler sculpture. I don't know why they downgraded to this thing, but oh well, he's just happier and dancing. Anyway, okay. Sixteen eighty three. Pardon me? Actually, that's a good point. Probably oh, yeah. me Think about that. Either war. <laughs> Actually, I didn't think about that. All right, so. In 1679, the Great Plague hit Vienna. Four years later, the Turks hit Vienna. Another plague of a completely different kind. But it's not just—and it's not just. Well, that's a rotten coincidence. They're like, dude, they just got hit by plague. So once the plague is over, they've got to be weakened, right? Now's the time for us to try this again. And I say again, why do I say again? Do you remember? That's right. They had that big siege back in 1529, so like 150 years ago. Is for me. Everybody comments on the hat. Uh, it Looks like a, go- a garlic bud. That's what I said. <laughs> Megan said it looks like a cream puff to her. She's like, she's like, it's really hard for me to take him seriously, and I and I right called.
1: Yet.
0: I know. And then I called her a racist, and then we moved on. But Suleiman the Magnificent, powerful sultan who saw himself as the new Tamerlane, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wipe. Uh, Christianity off the face of the planet, back 150 years ago, he had tried it, but you remember what happened? 150 years ago? We well, had that great general who came in. and they did everything they Yeah, 70 year old strategist, Niklas of Solm. This guy rocked. This is like, we're 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 totally going into militant mode, um, and he also had the Landsknechte. Remember these guys? These guys they dressed colorfully and and goofily, but they were like green berets. <laughs> why did they dress so colourfully and goofily? Remember scare? Yeah. If you are that good, you want people to see you coming. Because if you know that the Lance connect that are there, you'll tend to say, I don't think I'm fighting. I mean look at this guy with this with this Flambergé here, this wiggly sword. This thing will just rip you to shreds. You don't you don't get touched by this thing without dying. It's like putting on a Superman suit. <laughs> it is. You just go, Okay, it's Superman, I'm done, you know. Uh, and that's exactly what, that's exactly what they're going for here. That's where the song, Bring in the Clowns, comes oh, <laughs> from. Uh, oh, 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 oh. A, no, and I have to say that because we just listened to the, i believe it, Augustin, so i got to say no. But B, these guys didn't kill you for that, so no, we're not going there. But yes, it's this idea of saying from a distance you see the guys who are the scariest guys you can imagine. This is uh, part of why you use penance and things like that in and and. and, and wars, also so you can identify whose troops are whose. But with, with some of these things you want that fear and intimidation, shock and awe. So he saved the city with being smart. So this time around, it quickly became like a, a version of a world war, like a mini world war. Um, count, and, and I, 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 There are some of these names I just don't know how to pronounce, to be honest. So I'll call him Count Imre Tokoly. I have no idea how to pronounce it. But it's a, he's a Lutheran prince in Transylvania. Um, this guy absolutely hated the Catholic Habsburg Emperor Leopold I. He's a Lutheran, and Habsburgs are Catholics. So he hated Leopold, and Leopold rabidly hated all Protestants. So this was more than just the Turks are trying to invade Vienna. It starts developing this little sense of, of, a, of a, a Protestant-Catholic thing again because it involves all these people that desperately hate each other. So the Ottomans said, hey, Thukli, you can read, you can rule the kingdom of Vienna if you help us take Vienna. We want this, this green thing to grow and grow and grow. If you remember, this whole area of Wallachia and, and Hungary is a vassal state to the Ottomans, which is why it's, it's a sort of green there. It's a vassal state and, and, and they're serving the Ottomans. They're like, if you will help us take Vienna, if we turn this orange-green, you can have the kingdom of Vienna for yours. Yeah? How come the plague never hit the Ottoman Empire? Oh, it did. Some of the plague, like the, 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 the big medieval great plague started in Constantinople and in, and in Egypt. So it, it, it decimated areas there too. There just wasn't as many metropolitan areas in this area, and to be honest, because a lot of it retained a lot of the classical Greek and, and Egyptian culture in a lot of ways, um just had better, cleaner cities. Uh, part, of, part of the problem with Europe is that so many of the cities had gotten destroyed by Justinian's plague and by the barbarians and things, that the, uh, the cities that were slapped together afterwards were not as well thought through, didn't have the kind of Roman sewers, et cetera. Which is part of why Rome, part of the reason why Rome didn't get hit by the plague as much, is because it still had a lot of like Roman sewer sewers and things. Italy didn't get it as much badly because it still had a lot of the Roman uh, hygiene works. Anyway, um, I think I was going to say something else about this, but I've lost it now. So I'm just gonna keep moving. No, 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 it's a good question. Um, so, so he's like, Buckley, you can have you can have it if you'll help us with it." The Polish king. Uh, A guy named Jan III Sobieski asked King Louis XIV to come help. He's like, we need to defend Vienna. We're good Catholics. We need to go stand with Vienna and and, and support. But Louis, if you remember, is too busy being the god Apollo, right? He's too busy having people peel grapes for him because it's just too hard to bite through the skin of a grape. Louis was too busy being a nut to, to come and help. Plus... Louis hated the Habsburgs. Louis, Louis was a bore And the bore balls and the Habsburgs had centuries of hatred back before them. So he's like, I'm fine. If, if that orange Habsburg empire turns green, yeah, I'm fine with that. So, not a really helpful Louis in this respect. Sobieski said, I'm going to go anyway, even though I was going to go with a coalition with Louis. I'm still going to go. And Leopold said, Thank you very much. Right? This is one of these things where it's a little weird, uh, but you have to understand how important seasons are. It took them 15 months for the Turks to actually invade Vienna, even after they declared war against Vienna. Because they technically declared war against the Habsburgs in January, and then they moved their forces and were all ready to go by about August. Why didn't they invade in August? Yeah, you start going into the winter, and do you remember when they invaded the last time, it was the spring during, yeah, with the horrible, horrible rainy season, and they, they, like half, they lost half their people just by being soaked to the skin and cold all the time. They, had, they were sick all the time. So they're like, okay, we missed our window of opportunity. We want to invade like June, March maybe, earliest, we, we want to do, but you don't want to invade any earlier, than, you don't want to invade the winter, you don't want to invade in the early spring. So since we're actually ready to go, and we've got everybody all worked up and ready to go by August, we're toast. We might as well just wait and try it later. Which is good for the Viennese, right? Because it gave Vienna time to dig in and fortify. they rebuilt their walls. They'd already been, doing, been keeping it up since Nicholas's time, but they refortified their walls. They got everything ready to go. They put in a lot of food stores, etc. Leopold also had time to gain the support of Charles V, the Duke of Lorraine. Remember, all says Lorraine over here. Is it German or is it France? Yeah. At this moment, it's Habsburg. So uh, it's it's it sees itself as Germanic. That's not going to last. But anyway, Duke Lorraine is going to come. So this Ottoman Empire brings 250,000 troops to attack Vienna. Because they're like, okay, we, we went the last time. We didn't throw enough at it. We, we plan badly. We're totally hitting this as hard as we can. And that's not just Turks. It's also Hungarians and Transylvanians and, and Tatars from the, from the Crimea. We're getting as many different people as we can, to, of all of our vassals. We're going to hit this. We're going to hit it as hard as we can. We're going to take it out. Which, when you think about it, is good, war strategy. And this is like the invasion of Normandy. You're like, we're throwing everything. Because you have to hit this and win it, or else it was pointless to do. You can't sort of try this. Everything that's going to be huge, and they they hit Vienna, who had fifteen thousand defenders. There's a poor guy named Ernst Stahmberg, who is, is leading the defenders. He's like,
1: hum, 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 hum. this is huge. Last time
0: either, right? no. I mean, Vienna had
1: fewer than yep. the Ottoman army last
0: time. By far, but they had Niklas, who was kind of like Superman. So you know, and he had and he had the. And yeah, the lines connect to it, dress like. Anyway, and then Leopold brings in 100,000 troops from the Holy Roman Empire here in Austria and Lorraine, and then Poland is on its way. Sobieski is on his way. So he's like, this is going to be huge, right? Until he realizes that he has 100,000 troops against 250,000, so he leaves. He's like, we're totally outnumbered, we're out of here. So Leopold and Charles take their. Holy Roman troops and Lorraine troops and hit the road, leaving only the 15,000 defenders. This is politics, right? I would love to say this is politics in the Enlightenment age, but I'm pretty sure this is just politics, and I should end my sentence there. You know, it's like, you've got my support. Well, it looks like we might lose. Then you don't have mine. No, but, but if you hold on, we might win. Yeah, it looks like we're going to lose. So I've never been with him. You know, it's like, you guarantee that we're going to lose, right? But that means that Sobieski arrived to find that he's the only one facing the Turks. That's got to be a little unsettling. If the other two guys came uh, with their 100,000 troops and left, he's only got like 70,000 troops. He's got less than they did. Go for it! That's right. Because he's Polish, that means he's a stud. That's right. No, he's tough. He's a a very tough guy. Has 70,000 men against 250,000. But 3,000 of those men were called the, the winged hussars. Have you ever heard of a hussar? Huh? Exactly. They're, they're heavy cavalry. And the hussars, my oh gosh, the Polish hussars were famous even through like the Franco-Prussian War at the end of the 1800s. These guys were the greatest cavalry in the world at the time. Heavy cavalry. And they were known for having this plumage that they had sticking out of the back of their armor. Why would you do that? So you can see them coming, like the lines connected. You sit there and you go, we are the winged hussars. Everybody's terrified of us. By the way, see the wings? So you can see us coming from a mile away. Which is interesting, because for a brief, shiny moment, lots of different cavalries around Europe started putting wings on the back of their heavy cavalry. So everybody goes, are those the winged hussars? No, they're the winged hussar wannabes. You know? <laughs> but these are the actual winged hussars. When Leopold saw that he had brought the wing to czars. And when he saw how intense that the Poles were, they re-entered the fight. He's like, oh, well, we actually have a chance now. Again, politics. Love it. So, together, Leopold and Charles and Sobieski all attacked the Ottomans. In fact, the Ottomans had been laying siege for a couple months now. They were exhausted, but they had just broken through the walls. They had a chunk of wall, a couple of different places in the walls that they'd mined and blown up and and they were, they were preparing, to, preparing to go through. But they were also really, really exhausted. They'd already lost a lot of guys and, and, and tried to lay siege because Vienna had better cannons than they did. So they were kept getting smacked with cannon fire. But Sobieski led the largest cavalry charge in history. 3,000 Wing Hussars and then cavalry from Charles and from, from Leopold, and broke through the Turkish lines and scattered the troops. Huge. And, and the Turks even had cavalry from Crimea, just not the Wayne arms. <sighs> have you noticed something in, in, when we have talked about some of these battles? Is it a lot of times it came down to not necessarily who had the most guys, but A, who had the best ground or worst ground, and B, who had like one really good strategist or one really awesomely trained group. You'll actually find the same sort of thing. Um, in a weird sort of way, like in, in Old West shootouts, it's not necessarily who draws first. In movies, it's always whoever draws first, right?
1: You had the guns and shot the
0: street. That's right. In real life, it was who shot the best, either because they, they actually popped for a decent pistol or because they kept their heads. If you're standing there in the middle of the street, 10 feet, because most gunfights were really close, if you're 10 feet from another guy who was going to pull his gun and shoot at you, you're going to be tempted to go, oh, ah, bang, 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 and freak out. It's not the one who's the fastest. It's the one who keeps his head that makes the difference. So I may pull and, and shoot, and I get three shots off before you get one shot off. The first one goes completely wild. The second one hits the dirt. The third one might hit you in the foot, and you get one shot off through my forehead. You win. Right? A lot of battles are like that. Remember that when we get to Napoleon and we talk about Waterloo, okay? Anyway, a lot of life is like that. Keep your head. You don't have to have the best hand. Just play it well. Anyway, Ottomans lost 60,000 guys in this battle. The Holy League lost 4,500. This is a classic route. This isn't even including, golly, I don't remember how, like twenty thousand. I don't remember how many troops the the Ottomans got captured. This is just the ones that got killed. Um, Sobieski went through and just grabbed tons of loot, wrote back to his wife saying, it's crazy with loot. We've got tons of stuff. That was significant in a lot of crucial ways. Well, first off, it was the last time that the, the, the Ottomans tried to invade Vienna, and thus, if you remember the last time that they tried this, it, it kind of stopped them. They've been, they've been having about this kind of amount of green for 150 years. They haven't grown, right? This one actually made them start shrinking back. The, the, the Viennese actually took more territory. Uh, they started losing territory in, in, in Africa. This is the beginning of the shrinking of, uh, at least, at the very least, the eastwarding of the Turks, because a lot of them uh, retreated up here into the Crimea and just said, OK, this is ours now. Enough of the vassal thing. It's just us. So it, 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 this, is, this is the beginning of Europe saying, we're getting rid of this Muslim presence. Sobieski himself saw this as a miracle. He said, this is God stepping in to save the day. Not us, God, saving Christendom from Islam. If you're familiar at all with Julius Caesar, you know he actually fought a, ba- a battle against the, the people of Pontus here, also in the Anatolian, the Anatolian Peninsula, which is what we call Turkey now. Um, and he had said, Waini, witty, wiki, right? Which is how he would have pronounced it. But by this time, they're pronouncing it more... Italian. So it's "veni Vidi Vici, which means I came, I saw, I conquered, right? Familiar with that term? The phrase? Sobieski said, Veni vidi deus vici. I came, I saw, God conquer. So it's it's him being it's him being clever, but also says something about Sobieski's perspective on it. Again, come back to arguably just like Nicholas saved the day last time, Sobieski saved the day this time not only because he had the hussars or anything, but because unlike the Holy Roman Emperor, he didn't turn tail and run. Because he heard you. And he's just like, yeah, no, let's go for it. Kind of an important thing. Secondly, this is also something that inflamed the long-growing rivalry between Catholic Holy Roman Empire and Catholic France. Two Catholic countries. But they hate each other. Now, you can call it the French-German rivalry. Or the German-French enmity, depending on which side you're from. The French call it the French-German rivalry. The Germans call it the German-French enmity. But it's a thing. It's like capital letters and quotation marks thing. They hated each other. They still hate each other. They really, 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 really really hate each other. Like like, uh, Swedish and Norwegians or... (laughs) North Koreans and South Koreans or people from Georgia against everybody to the north. They hated each other. The Shiites. Anybody who spends too much time sitting right next to each other hating each other. Leopold said, I hate Louis for this. I mean, Louis refused to defend Vienna. It would have fallen if not for Sobieski. You twerp. You little twerp. You should have helped. Interestingly, Louis didn't just not help. He actually sent letters of encouragement to the to the Moors, to the to the Turks, saying, "Good luck, hope for the best. You want some money? It's like destabilize the Houseburgs. I'm fine with that. I think that's splendiferous. Knock yourselves out. We hate those guys. French Germans don't really like each other." Within a month of the battle, Catholic Bourbon Louis. Even attacked Catholic Habsburg Carlos II in Spain. You remember Carlos? poor inbred Carlos? Yeah. So, Louis is like, oh, we're totally invading Spain. It didn't last, but it was, it was his attempt to take over, uh, take over Spain. All of this kept all the Catholic powers from working together. This is kind of huge. For anybody who's ever wondering, other than the fact that Protestants are holding up truth, and truth will stay, uh, uh, why didn't they smack down Protestantism more? We have several countries that desperately didn't want any Protestants in the country Why did they have any Protestants in the country? Why was there a Protestant movement in in Europe in large part because the Catholics kept fighting each other the Catholics who were in charge couldn't work together The French hated the Spanish the Spanish hated the French the French hated the Germans and the the Austrians the Austrians hated them they hated each other Um, if you remember Spain, Portugal, France, Italy, Austria, Poland are all still solidly Catholic. Not just have a Catholic presence, but they consider themselves Catholic countries. They're making Catholic decisions. They're working with the Pope. I should say, maybe not so much Austria working with the Pope. The Holy Roman Empire kind of doing its own thing. But in general, strongly Catholic, right? (coughs) And in fact, at this time, 1685, King James II of England, who had been the Duke of York, right? the guy for whom New York was named, etc., is now king. James II, now king, even baptizes his newborn son Catholic. Because you notice I've been talking about that the Church of England has been Catholicizing more and more and more. Under James II, you go, yeah, more or less I'm going to consider it a Catholic church. We're not officially putting ourselves under the auspices of the Pope exactly. But we're sort of doing. So you go, well, if England and Spain and Portugal, France. Switzerland, pardon me, the, the, the Netherlands, Sweden, Luxembourg. Luxembourg, yeah, well, that's what it was, Luxembourg, kept it going. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, it's, seriously, you is yourself going, well, why did it stick around? It's because these guys kept fighting each other all the time. England hated France, France, basically France hated everybody. That same year, Catholic Bourbon, Louis Fourteenth overturned the Edict of Nantes. Do you remember what the Edict of Nantes was? Fifteen ninety eight, I think. Fifteen ninety eight, signed by Protestant Bourbon, Henri the Fourth. So we've got two Bourbon kings. One was a, a Huguenot, right? And the other one's a Catholic, but the, the It wasn't that was the one where they um it's like, okay, everybody everybody's religion's allowed, yep. like we all live in peace for time. Ish. Yeah. And it, it didn't really work so good. But the idea was that Huguenots could have their worship, that, uh, that the Catholics could have their worship, um, that the waldensian No, not them. Like a couple of people were excluded from that. But the Huguenots, the, and the Calvin, the, basically the Calvinists and, and, the, and the Catholics could, could have their worship in France. Louis says, nope, we're going to do something called the Edict of Fontainebleau. And now all Protestant worship is outlawed in France. It's not that if you, if you try to do any kind of Protestant worship, you go to jail, period. So this is, if these guys could have worked together, this would have been really, really bad for Protestantism. I'm not saying that it would have disappeared entirely, but it would have had to go underground like it had been for years up to that point. But they couldn't work together. It also fostered this hatred between Germany and France that would ultimately lead to, like, France supporting America in the Revolutionary War. Do you remember that? Why? Well, because they hated England, and they hated Germany, who was supporting England. Why was Germany supporting England? Why were England and Germany together? Anybody remember? Who was the king in England? What was his name? Yes, technically, Georg. He didn't speak English very well because he was so darn German. He had this thick, thick, thick German accent, barely spoke English at all. He's German. They have a German sitting on the throne of England. And so France is like, yeah, we hate England and we hate Germany. Georg is basically the poster child of both. He's the king of England from Germany. We hate we hates him. So yeah, they were fine. They're like, yeah, sure we'll throw you some ships, we'll blockade some British ports. We're fine with that. We hate England. The crucial Prussian resistance against uh, against Napoleon during the Napoleonic Wars. The Prussians, the Germans are like, there's no way we're letting Napoleon take uh, Europe. Arguably, England and Germany, holding on, no matter what else happened, is what kept Napoleon from taking everything. But again, you, see, you go, a lot of that is fostered back here, with we hate them. The Franco-Prussian War, at the end of the 19th century, this huge boundary-changing, life-changing war in, the, in this, I think, 1870s. Um, a couple of world wars. That that both times, the Germans specifically said, in fact, they even took it back to the Franks. They're like, way back in Charlemagne's time, France has always been a bunch of jerks. They've always been a world power. They've always been obnoxious. We're totally taking out France. Uh, Hitler's uh, propagandists even specifically went back to that and said, look at the centuries of French aggression. We hate them the beauty of history is not just that it's colorful or even that it informs where we're at now. But you just look at it and you go, it's not just isolated moments. It's, it's these fluid things. Like, like you look at William Penn and you go, Oh, from Pennsylvania. No, actually he's from England and he learned the gospel from a guy who had been reaching out in Ireland. There's fluidity. And then he went to America. Um, it's a lot of change and a lot of growth, but some things just linger on for stinking ever. This is one of those things. This also is the impetus for the creation of a pastry. Anybody? Yeah. This is what now, I'm not just putting this. I'm not just putting this in here because it's clever, but it is kind of clever. But also because some of us might go, yeah, okay, whatever, French, English, German, enmity, I don't know what. Pastry. Anybody want to take a, 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 a guess at what pastry? The croissant. Yeah, the croissant. It was a, a kit the Viennese were famous for making these puff pastries. They made one curled into a half moon shape, a crescent, in the shape of the Ottoman crescent, to specifically commemorate the victory.
1: That's it. I'm not eating croissants anymore. Hey
0: oh. What are you? You're pro-Turk? You're <laughs> pro-Muslim. <laughs> Yeah, you know, too. Uh, but I, I, I assume it comes from the same background. But and, 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 and they'd already had pastries that were, like, longish. This is where they specifically curled them in the shape of... Uh, uh, they had all sorts of different kinds of pastries, actually. But anyway, they're not a sight about the whole history of... Never mind, it right, doesn't matter. The point is, is... they get the, Yeah? So, like, croissant is French. Yep. And the French... because uh, the french really like the pastry. It's <laughs> very <laughs> 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 it just comes down to it the, they brought the, they brought this pastry I, I, I actually think it was the troops um, Charles's troops from Lorraine that brought it back to France and went this thing rocks. And so they brought this back and everybody in France went, "Awesome. It's a croissant." It was like, "Well, it's a it's a kipferl. shaped in a crescent. A croissant." So didn't go to I was now, I, I, <laughs> what I love is I grew up... I, I don't I even think I heard the term croissant until I was in college. I grew up... This here's a crescent roll. Because <laughs> I'm from America. <laughs> Which actually just proves the point, doesn't it? It's like, it's a kip roll. It's a croissant, and it's a crescent roll. It's like everybody just takes it and goes, we here, we make these things. I don't care. I love these things. I, I could... I could subsist on croissants. I love these things. But anyway, Megan, it was funny. Megan's like, why do people keep making food to commemorate victories? They keep doing this kind of stuff. They keep doing... I'm like, it's, it's it's a lasting daily reminder. It's like, hey, we're not Turkish. Oh, it's delicious. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's actually what she was pointing out to. Oh, next week, we're going to look at a guy from my family. <laughs> so, nifty, waggy fun. The the only this is like the, the the first actually historically relevant person in my family tree. so we'll have some. Just give us his name. Peter Schuyler. So And where is he? Just now you are at you're, just, just you're, ask, you're gonna look him up He's <laughs> <laughs> the first mayor of Albany, New York. Alright. But how would you describe this point in history, especially from a Christian perspective, from what we talked about today? What would, what would you say is a snapshot of what we claim? This is more than just yeah, that's nifty facts. We want to learn something from, from Pilgrim's Progress, from Augustine, from uh, the uh, the Siege of Vienna, from any of that. Just one single sure. thing. It just seems like it's a time of chaos and fighting more war, but yet
1: there are things that God allows to come through, like the Protestant movement is saying, all of Christendom is saved from being Muslim, you know, I mean, Islam taking over, I mean, a lot of things, very strategic, mm-hmm. that could have changed all of Europe, and would have changed from the United States. Uh, right here, you don't know it, but Because we have hindsight, but could have
0: changed. Absolutely. I think you you just synopsized this perfectly. You look at, like, Pilgrim's Progress, and at a time when when Protestantism is being, well, I should say Puritanism, non-Church of Englandism is being stamped down, a book gets written that becomes the bestseller in England that is an excellent synopsis of the Gospel from a Puritan, Protestant perspective. Uh, at a time when all the Catholic powers are actually growing in their Catholicism, and the Pope is going, Yay, we're winning, we're winning, we're winning. They just can't stand each other. They can't work together. Um, And and they're fighting each other. Jan Sobieski actually arguably saves Christendom, saves what eventually becomes a very Protestant nation, from a Muslim-Protestant alliance. The Muslims and Protestants versus the Catholics. And this Catholic comes in and saves Vienna, and ultimately arguably saves Protestantism in the in the process. It's all kind of like a bagpiper sitting in this pile of corpses. You sit, and you go, even in the midst of all the chaos, all the horror, all this kind of stuff, God keeps going, This, keep this one little bright light, this. This keeps things going. even in the midst of all these other things falling apart, God keeps showing that he's 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 faithful. Yeah. Just one other
1: thing. It just gives you the example now from uh, the importance of being faithful to your convictions. Yep. And who knows how God might use your life or what you're doing, something we might not know, it might be as historic as a book, writing a book, but if he hadn't been faithful, he wouldn't have been in prison and he wouldn't have had the time to write the book. Exactly. So, you know, it does say something to us, uh, be faithful to what God has called you to do, regardless of what it, the cost.
0: Next week we're going to talk about a guy named Brother Lawrence who, who wrote a book, actually put together a bunch of writings. But it was just for his own benefit and for the other brothers in his in, in his monastery. It, his book wasn't published until after his death. Bunyan got to see thousands of people coming to know the Lord because of his book. And you go, Well, that's huge. You go, Brother Lawrence just died a simple monk. There's nothing. I love brothers. Brother Lawrence's practice the presence of God. It's awesome. He didn't have any recognition that he was going to do anything big, any big deal. But But that faithfulness makes all the difference. He did a good job, just like I would say Tolkien and uh, and Lewis did a good job of saying, alright, I'm not going to change it, tweak it, I'm not going to water it down, so I'm just going to make it accessible so that you understand what I'm talking about. Uh, I mean, classic. the classic thing is uh, though I disagreed with his theory of the atonement, uh, Lewis expressed a complex understanding of the atonement in a children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, with Aslan and the Stone Table. Um, and, and, and you just go, boy, generations of children understand the ransom theory of the atonement, though they would never understand that that's what they're understanding. They understand the ransom theory of the atonement from reading this book. You did an awesome job. So did, so did Bunyan. We need to be careful because even today sometimes we go, well, we want to try to get the truth out to people. So tell you what, we'll tweak it to make it more palatable to a modern context. Uh, you, uh, uh, not, without naming names, I'll just say there have been several movies of late that have gone back to Scripture either mining it and, and they're not even trying to be Christian or even they're trying to be Christian but they're they're changing it so much that you say you're you're bastardizing the very Bible that you're trying to get out to the masses. Is that really the way to do this? You can simplify it without diluting it. Well, you can make it accessible without it. Exactly. All right, well, let's close with prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much. I thank you for, for all the different ways that you show your character, you show your faithfulness throughout history and in our lives. Help us, Lord, that when we look at our lives, instead of seeing chaos, instead of seeing evil victorious, or even instead of trying to wait for good to be demonstrably victorious, help us, Lord, to see your bagpipers in a pit moments. Help us to be able to see those moments of hope that you give us, those threads of faithfulness that can work with us and and support us even in those hardest of days. Help us, Lord, to be your masters, reaching out with your word and your truth to all those around us in ways that genuinely are meaningful and genuinely effective. Help us, Lord, to, to love you well, to work together and to take a faithful stand give all this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.